0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm chapter 50. The ascription tells us that this is a psalm of Asaph. And beyond that, we know absolutely nothing about the circumstances that lie behind it. It is, in that sense, universalized. It is helpful and appropriate and illuminating in every season and situation. The psalm itself provides a picture of present and future judgment. Kidner says here, In this powerful psalm, the imagined scene is a theophany. God appearing in fire and tempest at Mount Zion to summon the entire world to his judgment seat. All the world is summoned. And yet, as we shall see, the focus of the judgment is on the household of God. Plumer says here, as in the last day, so here, God lays open the character of his dealings with his professed people. The judgment scene itself is laid out in four parts, or four movements. In scene one, the court is assembled, verses one to six. In scene two, the first defendants are addressed. J. Alec Machir calls them ritualistic formalists, verses seven to 15. In scene three, the second group of defendants are addressed, the creedal formalists, And then in the final scene, in verses 22 to 23, the court renders its decision. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge." Notice again who is being summoned into the docket. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. This judgment is focused on the covenant community. Now, some folks may balk at that, right? Doesn't the Bible say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1? Well, of course, yes, it does. But no condemnation does not mean no judgment. Apostle Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So every human being, saved or otherwise, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and will give an account for what was done in the body, whether good or evil. This vision of Asaph is intended, therefore, as a prophetic warning it is saying judgment begins with the household of god by the way that's a quote from both the old testament and the new testament you can find a version of that in ezekiel 9:6 and another version of that in first peter 4:17 old testament and new testament judgment begins with the household of god it begins with the covenant community and the first thing it seeks to determine is whether professed believers are in fact true believers. Note this well. You will need to be convicted of faith. God does not take you at your word. Evidence will be summoned to determine if you are merely a nominal professor, a person who says, Lord, Lord, but does not truly believe. Old Testament and new, we find that warning as well. With all of that in place, we turn back to Psalm 50 in order to listen in on scene two as the first defendants are addressed. Those whom I mentioned, J. Alec Machir calls ritualistic formalists, the regular churchgoers and the faithful tithers. We're gonna check in on them first, verse seven. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Here God says that he has no quarrel with their faithfulness in worship. That's not the problem. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. This is similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 23:23 23, 23, to the scribes and Pharisees. He said, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say you should stop tithing, right? It doesn't matter to God. He doesn't care whether you give or not give. He doesn't say that. And God doesn't say that in this psalm. He is saying that's not the issue. The issue is that you think that by doing these lesser things, you are right with me. Do you think that I need the money? Do you think that you can buy me off? Do you think that I will overlook the serious deficiencies in your life just because you're a faithful and regular giver? Is that what you think? Then you don't know me. That's what God is saying here. These people are going through the motions. They are checking off boxes. They have perfect attendance and they tithe precisely 10%. And on that basis, they believe that they have a good standing with God. And that is what is being rebuked. Ritualism, minimalism, nominalism, and formalism. I love what Plumer says here. God is not enjoining more bloody, but spiritual sacrifices. We don't need more blood. We need more heart. In New Testament terms, we might say we don't need more money. We need more passion. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. The heart matters. Now, of course, some go too far in the application and they say, well, then, if the heart matters, then the deed itself does not. I will be a cheerful not giver. No, Jesus said, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others, right? These, the weightier matters, right? These you ought to have done, the weightier matters ought to have been attended to without neglecting the others. So clearly the goal here is to do the right thing for the right reason. That's what we are learning in this psalm. God will judge actions and motives. He will judge the deed and the heart behind the deed. Verse 16 and scene three. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done. And I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. I mentioned that J. Alec Machir calls these people the creedal formalists, meaning these are people who say the right things, but their heart is far from God. These are the Orthodox folks who have read both volumes of Jonathan Edwards' collected works. They, they read Calvin's Institutes for fun. They like to argue about the 1689 Baptist Confession as compared to the 1742. They introduce themselves as shorter catechism men. But the question here is, what right do you have to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips. The people being addressed in this scene are heartless hypocrites. They present as theologically committed. And yet the text says in verse 17, you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. You can't be corrective, corrected and you are selective in your commitment to the text. So this is like the person who will argue night and day over the very complicated doctrine of election, but who rejects the simple teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Things like, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. They've got a long explanation for why that doesn't mean what it seems to mean. And then a quick segue back into the super important conversation about infralapsarian soteriology. By the way, don't worry if you don't know what that means, because they probably don't either. They like to look like defenders of orthodoxy, but they are not themselves in submission to the text. That's what we're talking about here. Now again, the right way to respond to that isn't to say, well then, doctrine doesn't matter. No, that isn't the message here. The message is that appearances of orthodoxy don't matter if you yourself are not trembling before the text. It is hypocrisy, heartless hypocrisy that is being judged here. This judgment scene promises that God will judge people who do the right things but have no heart and people who say the right thing but have no heart. That is what this psalm is saying. It's saying that one day we'll have to stand before the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose face shineth like the sun. His gaze will penetrate to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So be ready. Be ready for God to look upon your heart. As David said, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Scene four, now in verses 22 to 23. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The final scene contains a warning and a reminder. The warning itself tells us something about God. It tells us that God wants us all to pass The final judgment. Peter says the same in 2 Peter 3.9. He says that God is being patient. He is waiting and warning because he doesn't want any to perish, but for all to reach repentance. The patience of God is mercy. The warning of God is mercy. Make good use of it. And this reminder of God here is also mercy. He tells us here what he wants to see on that day. That's the function of this vision that we're looking at in Psalm 50. He wants to see a life that has responded in gratitude to his grace and kindness. He wants to see that you have ordered your life in humble obedience and thankfulness. Those are the things that are mentioned in this psalm. A Christian, to use our terminology, is a person who has received grace and responded in gratitude and humble obedience. God will look upon your heart, but he will do it by examining what you say and what you do. He will look in a way that we can't. He will pierce to the very heart and soul of the matter. He will see the truth of who we are and whose we are, and he will assign a final destiny to us on the basis of what he sees. Therefore, friends, I say to you, as the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, 2 Corinthians thirteen five. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And if you are not, then flee to Christ because the patience of God is intended to lead you to salvation. This delay is mercy. This vision, this warning is mercy. This psalm is mercy. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into of the Word. If you are interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. Of course, the easiest way to make use of all the material we have at End of the Word is by getting a hold of our app. You can find that at the Apple App Store or Google Play. And it very helpfully organizes all the materials that we've produced over the years. You can also connect with us on Facebook, and I hope that you do that. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements, conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word.